Content warning. This episode discusses eating disorders and the current conflict in the Middle East. Please listen with care. to Aut Hour, the podcast where I usually interview other autistic authors for one hour. I'm Sarah Gibbs. I'm a comedy writer, author of Drama Queen, One Autistic Woman and the Life of Unhelpful Labels, and now author of, and this is what we're all doing here, a second book, Eight Bright Lights. There's no sub, there's no strap line, I don't think. Something about Hanukkah. It's a Hanukkah rom-com. I know, Would you like I know me to tell you your field. strap line? Oh, yes, please. Three women. Two weddings, one happy Hanukkah. There is a strap line and it is that. Rachel Krieger has very kindly come on Aut Hour as a guest host to turn the tables on me and interview me about my new book. So just a quick note about Aut Hour before I start. I did one season, which I loved doing, and I put it on hiatus for a little bit because it is unexpectedly triggering to constantly read other autism stories not to read them in general but just for that to be non-stop because I think it's so close to home that sometimes I'm just like I just want to have a rest from thinking about who I am for a little bit and when it's your work to I guess, process other people's very similar experiences. You don't get to sort of pause on that that mental work for yourself. So it's on pause for a little bit, but it's, I don't plan to pause it forever. I do plan to do a second series at some point, hopefully next year, with some really, really great authors. But for now, we're reviving the podcast for a one-hour special. My dear friend Rachel Krieger and co-host of, of Our Neighbours podcast, Leaving Erinsborough, and stand-up comedian and wonderful comedy person and writer and all-around human has very kindly come on to interview me about my new book so I am now under the microscope uh, for a change so let's uh ah let's see I'm very excited to do it because um and I have said this to you in private but I'm happy to say it publicly I really enjoyed your book um oh. it's a it's fun to read and what I love about it is that it's your voice like I, I could hear your voice um, delivering the lines, particularly if they were jokey punchlines. So um, before we go any further, I'd like to say, read the book. It's really good. But I think it's important for you to share a little bit about what the book's about and, you know, the kind of story arcs and what grips everyone when they read it. Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind. And I'm bad with compliments. And I, unfortunately, I'm not wearing a T-shirt I can, I can slowly turtle into. So... Eight Bright Lights is about three Jewish women over the eight days of Hanukkah. So they're basically at really different stages of their lives. There's one woman who has graduated university about a year ago and is now in a rut. She doesn't want to commit to anything. She doesn't know what she wants to be when she grows up. She's stuck living at her mum's pub in Topsham in Devon. 
and the pub isn't doing very well, but her mum employs her anyway to just give her something to do. And her mum's sort of on at her to do something with her life, as a good Jewish mother would be. Quite right. Uh, and Hannah really resents that sort of dynamic, and she's regressed to behaving like a spoiled child. <laughs> and her world is upended when a sudden bereavement changes everything, and she has to drop everything at the last second and go to... Israel, the country of her birth, where she hasn't been since she was a baby, and deal with this bereavement by herself. And it's sort of about her journey and the people she meets there and the relationships she develops with, with them. Maybe there's a little romance. There might be a little romance. <laughs> <laughs> it is a rom-com. And the second woman is Ella. She, like me, is autistic. So I, I think we'll be talking a lot about her. And she impulsively rage quits her job as a wedding planner's assistant where she's been quite badly exploited by her boss who is not Jewish but has sort of cornered the market of Jewish wedding planning and is very ruthless and goes after the competition quite aggressively and it's in these circumstances that Ella decides to strike out on her own and try to poach a few clients and get her own client list the only person who will come with her is a bride called Rachel, whose wedding is in eight days. No, but uh, named for you. Are you serious? Yeah. I named I all the characters after, after friends and family. Oh, I'm all emotional. You can't did tell. I, did I not tell you that? No. <laughs> I love her. She's my best character. I, I named every single character after a friend or family member. Oh, I've gone a bit like I've gone a bit <laughs> weird. I'm gonna have a sip of my coffee that's in a mug that says tea in Hebrew, so that's really very distracting. But uh, yeah, oh, thank you. I don't think I told anyone. I think I just sent the book to people and was like, they'll know, they'll know that I named characters for them. That's their name. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. So talk more about Rachel, the character. Let's pretend she's not me for a moment. I can't believe it. So Rachel is a distracted bride. She is going after her dream job at a magazine because this is a rom-com and what other jobs would people have other than wedding planner and magazine writer? And also because those have been my jobs in the past and I'm really <laughs> unimaginative. And she is going after this job because she really believes in the politics of this magazine. They've done a wonderful fat activism issue, which means a lot to her. They've done all sorts of hard-hitting features. And she wants she's in that sort of cusp of wanting to do serious journalism and, and reaching women. She wants it to, to reach other women like her. She wants to change lives. And this magazine is sort of the be-all and end-all for her. And at the same time, she uncovers a family secret of her grandmother's. And impulsively during her interview offers this up as a story and then has to make this happen investigating her grandmother's personal life sort of behind her back while deciding whether or not to effectively exploit her own family for her own ends but also altruistically because she wants to do good in the world and it's about that sort of struggle while she's trying to keep everything under control with her wedding with a wedding planner who keeps dropping the ball for reasons that are beyond her control and so slight chaos ensues and those are my three main characters i think it's really interesting because any one of those stories is interesting in its own right 
I'd say. How easy was it to kind of weave them in and out and make them connected without it feeling super contrived? Like we were talking earlier about neighbours, our um, bonding <laughs> connection because of our podcast um, and how sometimes things can be, how can I put it? Let's say stretched, but it doesn't feel like that here. So was that something that was sort of challenging for you? Was that easy for you? Well, I don't want to sound racist, but <laughs> it's North London Jewish community. So people are quite interconnected and mm-hmm. it is, it's not that we all know each other, but... But from the secret meetings. Yeah, from the secret <laughs> meetings at Wembley where we decide who's going to have a go at controlling the weather that week. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that, lads. It's, it was me this week and I, I bloody love the rain. Yeah, her space lasers are terrible. <laughs> really shocking space lasers. But, for example, when you and I first started interacting, we became Facebook friends and we knew all sorts of people who had nothing to do with comedy or anything. But we had random Facebook friends. We had an ex-boyfriend of mine in in common. Mm -hmm. Not in common. You didn't date him. Uh, But we had him. Husband, if you're listening, you know that. (laughs) As a mutual Facebook friend. Yeah. And so there are these connections. They do live close by. I don't think it was so much of a stretch because Hannah and... Rachel are cousins so mm-hmm. that made it quite easy and Ella is a wedding planner which made her connection to Rachel easy so as long as the connections I think are plausible yeah and it's not like a twist that these three random people all know each other but then you know it could be if their stories funnel down together I think when it becomes implausible is say when one character who has nothing to do with anything interconnects like there was i love neighbors i'm so sorry i'm not i'm not dig this is not a dig at the neighbors writers this is what they're meant to be doing it's a soap opera and it's brilliant but for example there was a storyline on neighbors where a character got pregnant via i don't even know what to call it it wasn't a surrogacy because she was the mum and she was planning to be in the baby's life but she was she was having a baby for her friends who were a gay couple and she decided that she wanted to keep the baby and she ran away. And then somebody, uh, the villain of the piece, Paul Robinson, went after her and purchased the baby back for a million dollars. And then it turned out that the baby that she gave him was the baby of the twin brother of one of the couple the 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 couple who she was having the baby for it was his twin brother's baby and she happened to bump into somebody that the twin had got pregnant at exactly the same time and if anyone had... is still following this by the way they get a special prize <laughs> yeah my point is is that was implausible but you know i think just people knowing each other socially yeah, and enough. their stories <laughs> intersecting felt less implausible to me like i felt like i could make that work Definitely. So when you decided you were going to write a story about three Jewish women and obviously the device is it's the build up to Hanukkah. So for those who are listening, who might not know that it's a Jewish festival that happens at a similar time to Christmas, but it's not Jewish Christmas. And it is eight days where you light one candle on the first day, two on the second, etc, etc. So it builds up as a festival of light. So you get the most light on the last day, which is a lovely thing. Did you have a particular audience in mind were you thinking this is just for the Jews this is not for the Jews what did you think well I think first and foremost I wanted it to be for the Jews because I think if Jewish people aren't enjoying this book then I've really failed them right so it wasn't that I was thinking this is for a Jewish audience but I was thinking 
if anyone enjoys this, I want to make sure that Jewish people enjoy it. And I also want to make sure that it's accessible to the wider community, that people read it and they feel like they're learning something rather than they feel on the outer. Mm. So actually how this came about was I had a dream that I made a Richard Curtis movie about Hanukkah. Right. And I wrote I'm in my there notes. for that, by the way. <laughs> like, you know, anytime. Yeah. I mean, I think I've slagged him off quite a lot now, so I don't think that's going to happen. I, I have... I have billed this as love actually without all the problematic men. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think he's going to work with me, which is fine. I would like a lovely female director if we make a movie of this, please, uh, to make this movie because it, it's a story about women for women. Anyway, I think, yeah, I woke up in the middle of the night and I wrote in my notepad, Richard Curtis Hanukkah movie. Right. And I've still got that note in there somewhere in my, in my, in, in my iPhone notes or whatever it was. Oh, I love that. And, and so that's that's sort of where it came from. But I wanted it to have that sort of cosy Christmas rom-com feel. But yeah, it's hard for me to not write my heart into a book. And my heart is Jewish, you know? Mm, absolutely. And I have to say that currently we're chatting from um, my dining room, which has got like all my Jewish books behind me. So it looks very library-ish. Also has like a skull from a show, various things. But um, I am a sucker for chick lit right that is mm. um I sort of like um murder books and chick lit which I think <laughs> is a very normal combination and if and I've read so many of those kind of Christmassy novels and you know I enjoy them so I don't see why people wouldn't enjoy one about Hanukkah I just think people aren't used to having access to that and I think you've mm. made it super accessible because I don't think this is like a preachy religious kind of this is and this is a great book for year five to read so they learn more about definitely not for year five actually no definitely not (laughs) it's um, very sweary and there's there's it's just a it's just a context I mean I appreciate it because I'm a stand-up comedian who's an orthodox Jew and the Jew bit is just my context the rest of it is just observation and I'd say that's what I found in here but obviously you chose to make one of the characters Ella autistic and dyspraxic and as another neurodivergent person I had related to quite a lot of her story but why was it so important for you to have you not just representing Jews but particularly an autistic dyspraxic Jew and what was it like to write that character? Well I think I would like from now on to write autistic characters into everything I do because Mm -hmm. I just want it to be commonplace it's bizarre to me that our representation is treated like a niche issue and that's been reflected in I've had mostly really wonderful reviews people have been really receptive to the book people have really enjoyed the book Mm -hmm. and the only reviews that have been negative and this is what's made me even more determined have been like oh I didn't like that one of the character had a characters had a condition or I didn't want to be yeah I didn't want to be bashed over the head we get it she's different so okay this is exactly why we need for her to just her to be talking about being autistic to just be part of who she is Mm. yes it's a point of of difference because she's different to the majority of people but she's talking about it in a matter of fact way and it's interesting to me that just the act of matter of factly being autistic bummed some people out so much yeah 
Well, even in the book, her sister already like feels that her um, diagnosis is a kind of just as an excuse, really. And it's Mm. not a thing. If she sort of pulled herself together, she could do better. And I use that term super loosely. So is that something you've experienced that people have kind of thought, well, you know what, if you just could get on with it a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Mainly people who are no longer in my life, if I'm honest. But there are a few family members who have said to me almost verbatim some of the things that Ella's sister says to her about it being horoscope syndrome. Yeah, cathartic and sad. But I think that's important to represent because there are a lot of people who get a diagnosis and they finally, a late diagnosis in adulthood, they finally have a framework with which to understand themselves. Finally. And they're so excited to share that with other people and to be able to finally put a language to an experience that they might have been trying to hide for maybe even subconsciously for their entire lives. And then they're met with ridicule or disbelief Mm. or, and often, and I think this is something that Ella points out in the book, often the people who are the most disbelieving about your autistic traits are the people who are also the hardest on you about how they manifest. Right. So they're the people who think you're lazy. They're the people who think you're dramatic. They're the people who think you're not trying hard enough. But when you're like, this is why, they're like, oh, an excuse, is it? So it's really interesting that the people who are the least accommodating about you being autistic and therefore should recognize that you are autistic the most because they're the people who seem to be most impacted by it if the way that Mm -hmm. they talk is to be believed are the people who believe it the least yeah I know I totally related to that um Mm. and um it's you know that kind of labeling and I also thought it was interesting because her relationship with her partner Georgie because uh Georgie's neurotypical and you and I Mm. both have neurotypical neurotypical partners and I thought it was really delightful because in terms of their relationship Ella's autism and dyspraxia is just like it's just a factor yeah you know as in all the things about uh, someone in a relationship should just be a factor of who they are and you love them with all those factors because that's who they are and I thought you conveyed that really well was that like a really conscious thing that you wanted to show that you can be autistic you can have dyspraxia you can have whatever issues you might have but um, it doesn't restrict you to only moving within that community for your validation yeah, I mean, so my husband's ADHD, but we didn't actually know that until about uh-huh. a year and a half ago. So he's also late diagnosed. So we are a fully neurodivergent household here in different ways. And I think neurodivergent people do tend to gravitate quite naturally towards each other because there's less of a language barrier. So I think, I don't know about Georgie. I, I have a, There's a sort of question mark for me over Georgie. Like, is she neurotypical? I don't know. Because it's not Georgie's story. But... What I wanted to represent overall is I didn't want this to be an autism story with a capital right. A and a capital S. I didn't want it to be about about Ella being autistic. I wanted it to be someone who is autistic and is living their lives, someone who mm-hmm. is autistic and is lovable, someone who is autistic and has a great romantic relationship, someone who is autistic and is accepted and supported, someone who is autistic and has a job that they love, someone who is autistic and lives a life you don't get to see often autistic characters live and what I've really enjoyed about multiple books that have come out recently by other own voices authors is just the joy of getting to see autistic people living 
and we don't often get to be human in stories that are told from a neurotypical perspective from the neurotypical gaze we are often a problem to be solved or you know my sister's autistic and it's an emotional thing or my child is autistic and I'm in a support group or whatever else and it's nice to see an autistic person who is not the problem right yeah it it actually reminds me a little bit of the way that Georgie Stone's character uh, Mackenzie was developed on Neighbours because she's a trans character but the fact that she's trans is only mentioned when it's relevant yeah. Um, because the rest of the time she's just a person doing her li- her life stuff and yeah. uh, so like when you were writing Ella's character because obviously there's not one way to be autistic even though there's probably um, an outside world view of what, yeah. of what autistic people are like was there any particular like tropes that you were worried about kind of conveying or feeding into people's expectations or uh, was there something you particularly wanted to focus on and highlight other than the fact that she's just a person doing her thing I was particularly concerned about a tragedy narrative which I think is often how autism is portrayed like say a tragedy a problem an issue and I think that's why there were people and I say they were very much in the minority who stopped reading going I don't want to read an issue book right so that I really wanted to avoid, I also wanted to avoid sort of the idea of the savant, the superpower. I just wanted Ella to be a person. And I wanted her to to walk into the flower market and say, that box is exactly the number that we need. (laughs) I have counted every flower in this flower hall without Mm. looking at them. No, I wanted her to be someone who just was a regular person with regular capabilities who is autistic. and. I think I wanted her to feel as true to life as possible. So I kind of gave her my flavor of autism. Yeah. She's not me. We have different circumstances and different personalities. But in terms of how she experiences the world, I wrote it quite closely to my Mm. own experience, my own sensory experience, my own sort of processing, because I wanted it to feel as true to life as possible. And it kind of felt like if I write someone else's experience of autism in the first person then I'm sort of not quite but I'm sort of still doing what neurotypical writers do mm. and imagining what it might be like to be an autistic person who say loves trains you know right, what I mean right. absolutely the one that struck me was that um, there's often a kind of stereotype of autistic people as having no empathy mm. when the majority of people um, who are autistic, who I know, and even people who have various types of neurodivergence, like similar to me, are, if anything, too emotional and empathic, like it's Mm. thinking, and also because of kind of, and this is, again, this is more my experience, like the reading of other people and their emotions is such like a massive focus on trying to get it right, Mm. that my emotions are often quite heightened. And I thought the fact that Ella was so she's good at her job because she actually cares about the people and she wants them to be happy you know with their wedding or or bar or bat mitzvah or whatever it might be I thought that was a really interesting and for me personally quite a helpful choice to show she's a she is a person who has empathy and that's what makes her good at her job as anyone doing that job should have it also makes her bad at her job so I wanted it to I, I wanted it to highlight, like you say, that sometimes the empathy is overwhelming to the point where it can actually be detrimental and distracting. 
because it's it can be i'm sure that there are autistic people out there who lack empathy we're not a monolith and everything i say here should always come with that caveat we're all different yeah but there are many autistic people who experience empathy in such an overwhelming way that they might say ruin their own day trying to help someone else or overextend themselves over promising and then finding that they can't deliver what they promised on or that they damage their own physical or mental health trying to get everything done that they've promised to do we've all been there I mean I've been there certainly mm-hmm. and I say we've all those of us who experience the world like that have been there you and, and I have been there so yeah exactly so Ella is it's it's her strength and her weakness in 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 one package really mm-hmm. it's her strength because it allows her to interpret a client's needs to really care about what they want to really listen to what they want and to try and deliver that and do her best for them it's it's to her detriment because she might really need to do something for her job and if she sees someone in trouble she has to stop and help mm. she compulsively has to help also that is her strength because helping people is ultimately what leads her to success and I won't spoil the twists and turns of the story but she is not the embodiment of no good deed goes unpunished no so it's a complicated experience of the world and empathy but I wanted to show how complex that experience of empathy can be for autistic people who are quite emotional actually this is making me think about the fact there's this kind of well-known theory that when you're a writer all the characters you write are actually a bit you Mm. Um, and your three characters are sort of quite different but I'd be interested to know like the Ella aspect you've spoken about how that's like yourself but what about Hannah and then what about Rachel because Rachel who I didn't know is named after me but does have some of my life issues so yeah I'm I'd just be interested to know like where you see yourself in those characters and what about them spoke to you? So with Rachel, and this is why she's named after you, it's her sense of social justice and always doing the right thing Aww. and wanting to improve the world with what she puts out. And she does that through her creativity. So Rachel, like you, that this is sort of why why she why I chose to name her after you was that just that she feels so strongly about everything she puts into the world, leaving it better than how she found it. And she's not willing to compromise on that. She's not willing to go and work for the problematic magazine. She's not willing to just take the paycheck and do what's right for her career. She wants it to be, she wants it to be meaningful. And so I think that's something that you and I share and we we both have a determination to want to try and always do what's right and think about what's right. And also Rachel's, I guess there are elements of Rachel's family dynamic that exist within my family to certain degrees, but there's no direct analogy. There's no direct Solly or direct Rachel's mum. It's just little little bits mm. here and there that I've woven in. And with Hannah, mm-hmm. Hannah Sorry, just want to like sell Rachel for a bit, not to have like a massive ego. <laughs> um but I'm just interested because one of the um aspects of her character that you brought in is about fat activism. Yes. Um 
which isn't like specifically something I've been into other than just general body positivity. I think there's an, enough mm. hate going on everywhere. We can just try and just like our own skin a little bit um, mm. as best we can. That's a healthier way to be. You know, I was just interested about that because that's not your appearance now. Um, yeah. I don't know if it has been in the past before we knew each other. But yeah, I just thought that that's because you're writing Ella who has um, an element of her personality that you mm. can see very directly relates to you. But I suppose as women growing up in society, grow up in learning to love yourself in your own body is quite, well, people don't really want you to do that um, because it stops them from marketing stuff at you. Um, yeah. I'm just curious how it felt to write someone who had like a very different issue. So for me, I think it was, I was reading Sophie Hagen's book. Right. And they were talking about representation and the type of positive representation that they would like to see. I can't remember if it was in their book or somewhere else that they were talking about this. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about rom-coms and body image and the kind of messages that I grew up with as a teenager which fed into quite a serious eating disorder at the time right wow and so for example Bridget Jones recording her weight every two seconds I put a content warning at the top of this episode uh, that we are going to be talking about this stuff but yes um, Bridget Jones recording her weight obsessively Mm. and constantly relating that to her state of mind to how lovable she thinks she is Mm. and I wanted a character and also listening to podcasts like maintenance phase I really learned a lot about how fat people are treated in society and how doctors treat people how people are pressured into attempting to lose weight Mm. and how often that's not that's not possible for people for a multitude of reasons but they're shamed for that they're made to feel they don't deserve medical assistance because of it they're made Mm -hmm. to feel that they they're not attractive and lovable and desirable and I started doing a lot more reading I started following fat activism and fat inspiration bloggers and Instagrammers and TikTokers. And Mm. I started reading more books and I really felt strongly that it's a message that society doesn't hear enough, doesn't understand. And I was really, really nervous about this because Anytime you're writing about any kind of minority issue that is not your own personal lived experience, Mm. there is a fine line between representation and appropriation. And there is no point at which I want to feel like I'm mining other women's stories for my own ends or anything. So, uh, but equally, I didn't want to have you know three thin women and and just to not think about any of any of that. It just it felt like. I had space for that representation and I yeah. wanted to put it in. So I, I, I interviewed some friends who are in that sort of fat activism space and who have more experience, who have lived experience. And we talked about, cause when I started writing Rachel, she was basically like, 
I love my body and I'm I'm really positive about it. And I and I talked to a good friend. I don't know if she wants to be named or not, so I won't name her, but she was so, so helpful in this area. She said she needs to be a bit more broken by the way society treats her. She would yeah. not be, you know, she's not a caricature. She's not a Hallmark card, basically. She would not be yeah. like, yay, I feel great about myself all the time and it never bothers me. That's because comments, nobody does, yeah. is the truth no. of it, regardless of their size or shape or whatever. It's, I mean, it's very rare, I would say, to find someone who just has always like sat in their space and it's never been an issue. Um, yeah. And that's probably true of all genders as well. Yeah. And she, she basically said she she these comments need to hurt her. They need to pierce whatever armor she is putting up. Yes, she might feel great about herself most of the time, but there will still be moments where someone says something. And that's true of anything. Like you say, that's true of me being autistic, where I'll feel great about it most of the time. And then someone will say something and it will trigger me back to a moment earlier in my life where I didn't feel so great about myself. And that's trauma. And Rachel has a lot of trauma. And specifically pertaining to her family and her relationship with her sister and her mother uh, and some of the male relatives who I would say there's less trauma there but they're certainly not helpful and so that was really helpful for me in sort of giving me permission to approach Rachel as a more thorough and complex human being rather than I'm fine and I'm great and I don't have any issues anymore with with how I feel about myself she's still processing everything and that's an important part of who she is and it does play into how she experiences her relationships and experiences the world but it's not it's not all there is to how she experiences the world no completely um so and then i had a sensitivity reader read the final product as well they were super helpful as well in just ironing out any last things that they queried and really helpful as well because the things that actually she flagged up were the way that I talked about characters who are not fat right. in in terms that she was like skinny feels quite judgmental and I was like oh yeah I guess it like it hadn't even occurred to me you know that yeah. that might that might be upsetting for people who have eating disorders and things which obviously is my lived experience so I wasn't thinking how do I be sensitive to this? I was just like, mm, whatever. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was really super helpful. And I I hope that I've done her justice and got it right and that people feel well represented by her. And all I can say is I've done my best. And if I <laughs> haven't done well enough, I, I will keep trying to do better. Uh, and... I really just, I really hope people enjoy and love Rachel as much as I do. Well, I loved her. In, Thank you. In, even before I knew I had any connection to her. <laughs> and what, what about Hannah in terms of your personal connection to her story? So Hannah, like me, is half Israeli. And mm. like me, moved to England as a baby. So while she has this connection, this ancestral connection to Israel and familial connection, she she herself doesn't really feel Israeli. You know, right. she, she's grown up here. She feels English, but also kind of like an outsider here because there is always that element of feeling a little bit on the outer when you're Jewish, that you know, even if you are completely British through and through, that there are people who don't see you that way, mm. like as, as with any minority. And I guess 
the elements of Hannah are she's not quite a younger version of me. I don't think I was ever late to things and mm-hmm. um and uh, I don't think I was ever quite that directionless. I always you know, kind of had quite a laser focus on what I wanted to do, but it's more the way that she elbows her way into Israel gung ho about how she views the political situation mm-hmm. and her opinions, which I think is what I don't think her opinions are at all invalid. I think she's making really valid observations as an outsider going, oh, this is kind of messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she is making them in a way that doesn't consider the lived experience of people who are actually there living in a war zone. And I yeah. think that's a thing that a lot of people do. So I think that's a thing that I have definitely done when I'm younger and gone, well, actually, I have all the answers. And then with all the best of intentions and with all the heart in the world, you might not have the answers. And that doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just mm. means you don't have the answers that you think you do. And well, it's a co- yeah. so complex as a situation. Um, mm. And people are always looking to make it black and white when it's, I mean, a million shades of um, complicated grey. So were you kind of, were you worried about creating a character that has a connection to Israel and placing some of the story in Israel, given how sensitive the world is, even before recent events, the world is quite sensitive about that topic. And I speak as someone who has people (laughs) shout free Palestine from the audience when I mentioned being Jewish. Yes, that was terrifying mm. and even more so now because I think post October 7th and post the events since and God only knows what's, what horrors are yet to come, mm. it feels, first of all, it was like, is this wildly insensitive now? Have I, you know, have I written something that is wholly insensitive? And I read it back trying to be really honest with myself and I thought you know what no I don't think I have I think that this is still even now a realistic way that two young Jewish people especially a British Jewish person and an Israeli might discuss the conflict yeah however since these events have unfolded one thing I've noticed and I'm sure you've noticed too being as entrenched as we are in the community and and in the wider sort of political community is that people are really digging their heels into this black and white narrative on whatever side they have landed on mm-hmm. and with every unfolding atrocity on both sides and i say on on both sides and it, it's hard to talk about my own politics because my own politics are nuanced to the point where they piss everyone off. (laughs) So I would say what happened on October 7th is the deepest trauma that Israeli society has ever experienced, Mm. that the Jewish community has experienced since the Holocaust. And I don't want anything I say next to minimize that. Right. Because I think what is happening now is the way that events have unfolded since and I would say the atrocities being committed in Gaza and I do think they are atrocities um, which I know is going to upset a lot of people mean that the world is saying well there's there's no two sides this is not a conflict Mm. and I don't believe it's a conflict 
of equals. I don't think you can say that there is the same amount of military might on both sides, but still in the last month and a little bit, 1,400 Israelis were brutally murdered. So to say it's not a conflict, to say there's no two sides is, I think, disgusting to the memory of the 1,400 people who died, to their grieving families, to the grieving community, and to people who are still utterly terrified, no matter how their government is behaving, Mm. utterly terrified for their own safety as well. And I've seen people on social media say, well, people in Gaza aren't just terrified. There's nowhere to go. They don't have their bomb shelters. They're not terrified in their bomb shelters. And that is a sentiment I agree with, but that does not diminish the terror and suffering of living in a war zone on either side, even if Mm. your side is not necessarily the underdog. And also what I've seen, which has horrified me, and again on on both sides of this conversation, is people basically saying that if your government commits atrocities, then you as a civilian deserve to die in the most horrific way. You deserve to be killed. You And I am looking at this going, we are all losing our humanity in yeah. this. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I'm watching people on both sides post the most racist, diminishing, insulting, horrendous, dehumanizing things saying, well, you know, you people are bloodthirsty monsters. You deserve it. And that could, that, I, that could have come from either side because I've seen mm. it on, in both ways. And I'm thinking, how is this helping? Who is this helping to perpetuate the dynamics of this conflict, to create a microcosm of this conflict outside of the region, to diminish people's humanity, to become bloodthirsty in that way, to hope that human beings who have done nothing but live in a place that you don't agree with, live under a government that is committing acts that they have no control over that you believe that they should die for those reasons what is happening and so i'm not sorry that i wrote the book in the way that i did i'm not sorry that israelis are humanized i'm not sorry that atrocities are called atrocities and i'm not sorry that the debates that we do have amongst ourselves within our community play out even though it is really, really scary mm. to put that out there because it is a thing that is going to upset almost everybody because of how entrenched everyone is. I talked for a really long time. <laughs> no, I thought it was interesting what you're saying. What I found is I'm trying to kind of, because I, w- I often end up challenging it, I'm trying to avoid being in spaces where Jewish or Israeli people are being blanket hostile towards mm anyone who may have any kind of ethnicity connected to um you know Gaza the West Bank Palestinian identity but it's harder to avoid the people who are anti-semitic as opposed to Mm. anti-zionist because they are proactively seeking Jewish voices out so that's that's kind of where the challenge is 
I actually had a really nice message today from um, someone else who's working in comedy in London. Like, again, I'm not going to say their name because I haven't asked for permission to say their name, but um, another comedian who's also a comedy promoter um, Mm -hmm. who has family um, in the West Bank. And she reached out to me today because really, who knows better how each other feels than people who have family on one side or other of the current conflict. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing. And we had a really quite meaningful conversation because when it comes down to it, governments make decisions, whether they're a democratically elected government or a bullied into position government, Mm. they make decisions on behalf of the ordinary people and ordinary people just want to be able to get up, you know, be late for their bus, go to school and bunk off into the toilets um, during maths or go to work and stand at the water cooler and slag off your boss or talk about what was on telly last night. You know, that's what most people want. Most people, ordinary people, don't want their kids to be in war zones. You know, however they are, that's like you, what I'm trying to hang on to the humanity. And I feel like for Hannah, she goes out with very preconceived ideas, but Mm. she does kind of learn to be able to listen and hear the um the nuance and the diversity amongst people's experience and under what understand why different people have different views mm. and no one's you know one of one of, I, it made me think about one of my very close friends who's actually another comedian and she's Israeli and she went through quite traumatic things when she was in the army and she has some very different opinions to mine about Israel but I would never say her experiences aren't valid because they're based on her lived experience she's not hypothesizing from an armchair in I don't know Finland and she's I don't know why I've said mm. Finland people all the Finnish people I know are lovely <laughs> but you know do you know what I mean she's not it's not yeah. it's not an opinion from a distance and I feel like that's something that with all your characters really you've made quite special that they're people who kind of are learning and growing and they're not no one's fully formed you know in life none of us are and Mm -hmm. sometimes it could be quite jarring when you read something and the characters got it all sussed so having someone even and, and also kind of having someone who has a very strong opinion and it's not that Hannah's opinion changes in terms of she still has her feelings but she mm. understands other people have different feelings and that's okay as well. And I thought that was yeah. really beautifully um, thought through, actually. So I think, thank you. I mean, I think what I wanted to show was not so much, I don't think Hannah and Leo are worlds apart in how they view what they want to happen and their vision for the future. I think that they both actively want a peaceful coexistence in mm-hmm. the future. But... Hannah is defensive because she's expecting Leo to be super right wing and racist. Yeah. And that's that's a form of racism in itself. She's yeah. expecting, uh, because he's Israeli, because he lives there, she is sort of projecting to him that she thinks he's going to have these opinions. And he knows he's not naive. He's been out in the world. He knows that that's how people are going to automatically view him who are yeah. not Israeli. And so he is automatically defensive about that. And so actually, I think if they sat down and said, well, what what's your vision for right. the future? They would probably be on exactly the same page. It's, we'll send our kids to the hand-in-hand school, or, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I won't spoil anything, but they do end up politically on the same page, working to make things better. Mm. But I think the language that they're used to 
the, the sort of barriers that they're used to coming up against when they try to discuss this with people, they've both got their preconceived notions about how other people are going to respond to them when they say certain things. And what was really interesting to me was it was not that Leo was contesting the ethics of what she was saying. It was that she said, it's easy for you to say about the wall, you're not on the wrong side of it. And he said, it's easy for you to say, you're not on either side of it. Mm. And that is something that I've had Israelis say to me. And it's, it, I don't I don't really want the book to come down on a judgment about it. Mm. It was, and I don't really want the book to illustrate anything about my own politics beyond this is ha- this is the reality of how young Jewish people are discussing this. This is how a lot of young Jewish people are talking about this. And mm. whether you like it or not, those are the conversations that are happening. Mm. Those are some people's experiences. And mm. also the truth is, I mean, your book would have had to have been, you know, like the encyclopedia, the length of the encyclopedia, if you'd included every single person in even in the just in the Jewish community's perspective yep. and views on Israel. But yeah, I think um, it's it's a really I think it's really well handled because it's contextual to your story. And it it doesn't feel shoehorned in in a kind of now I must do this. Now I must say that at all, which I think yeah. is hard. Is, is the reason I'm saying it but you brought Thank up Lior and so I feel <laughs> like we should we've talked a lot about the women in your book because they are the main <laughs> focus and um, maybe we should just briefly touch on the men because you said this is um, like a Richard Curtis film without the problematic men or love actually without the problematic men but you know you have a variety of male characters who weave in and out of the story you've got mm-hmm. Lior Raffaele and then um, Natan um, who is um, Ella's brother-in-law. There are actually some problematic men. Yeah. <laughs> Just make them the heroes. <laughs> um, you've, you've got Oren, um, Hannah's dad, and yeah. Motti, her uncle. So they do kind of weave, and of course, Christian, Rachel's uh, non-Jewish husband, um, <laughs> or husband-to-be rather, who in, in many ways most Jewish of them all. But yeah, I was just interested in whether, first of all, what was it like writing male characters in that way? Because I think this is different from script writing because yeah. in a script it's very directive and in a novel or a, a story story, you want to create somebody that the reader will illustrate for themselves. So mm. what was it like creating those men? It was a lot of fun. I I particularly enjoyed creating Leo. It's nice to have a little brain boyfriend for a while. <laughs> it's nice, it's nice uh, to sort of imagine somebody up, dream somebody up and be like, I'm going to give him, I, I shall give you a, one of my ribs. And <laughs> that's all very biblical. But yeah, it, it, it was it was good fun. I think I, I wanted Leo really to be someone that I under people understood why Hannah fell in love with him yeah because I often read or watch romantic things and I'm like and why are they together why why do we like him why are we rooting for this arsehole Uh, and I didn't want him to be an arsehole I wanted him to be complicated but I didn't want it to be one of those things where he's terrible to her and pulls her pigtails and then at the very end surprise he actually likes you I wanted yeah, to see that. Yeah, he's not a Heathcliff or Darcy. No. He's because he's a laugh. Yeah. He, he's, exactly. He's fun and nice and also complicated. Whereas often I think complicated men in storylines are just complicated so we f- can forgive them or anything mm. they do that's horrible. <laughs> what about um Oren Haddad? 
Oh. <laughs> this is like the absent voice that's present yeah. all the way through the story. I mean, there are elements of my own dad. My dad was not absent, um, but I lost my dad when I was 25. So mm -hmm. just a little bit older than Hannah. And so there were elements of that loss in, I didn't realize how much actually, I think I was like, there's nothing of me in this. And then I was listening back to a moment in the book where you do hear Oren's voice quite strongly. And I was like, oh, this is my dad's voice. Like I've written oh, him wow. in my dad's voice. And Motti, I, I don't think he'll mind me saying is very directly based on a on a family relative who I didn't get permission. <laughs> I said, can I base this character on you? He said, sure. What can I tell you? I was like, it's still fiction. You don't need to tell me it's fine. <laughs> just, just, you know, do you mind if I make him a little bit you? Because if I really do, there's one thing naming a character who is not somebody after someone, but making someone so directly, almost verbatim, right. somebody that you know, I feel, think requires permission, which I have in writing on WhatsApp uh, in case my <laughs> publishers are listening and are worried. Yeah, so there, there's that sort of family dynamic there. Oren, I think is you know my dad was was very present oren is quite selfish and he doesn't mean to be he loves hannah but for his own reasons he's just not equipped in whatever way he's he's a weak man mm. and she has a weak dad and a strong mum and the weak dad is the one she sort of idolizes but is also furious with at the same time and so it's an incredibly complicated relationship that she has mm -hmm. to someone who she can never now process that relationship with because he's gone right. so his death while it leaves things unresolved for her is also a, re a, a kind of a rev resolution in in a way to something that she's been hanging on to for a really long time and yeah. something that's been hanging over every relationship and every decision for a really long time this sort of waiting in limbo for somebody to step up and now he never will. And she, she has to process that. But it is, in a way, permission to start to heal. Yeah, I think that's true. And also, I um, think that Motti's kind of blunt matter of fact, but this is how we just get on with it. I felt mm. like that is there is a certain type of um, Israeli man that, that mm. really represented like people amongst my family and acquaintances yeah. as well. And what about Chris? Chris is basically my husband, John. Aww. I, I think in many, many ways, especially in the way that he sort of integrates with the Jewish family and he's really in in ways, like you say, a lot more Jewish than I am. <laughs> he's really, really into it all and has really embraced it and the family have really embraced him and he's quiet and supportive, but when he talks, you should be listening. Yeah, that definitely came through. One of my favourite elements of the book, actually, was that you called uh, this character Natan because it's such a like standard name of North London Jewish boys of a certain age who are kind of <laughs> communally connected. Um, you know, like Natan, Asher, like there's this sort of groups of yeah. names. And I liked it that, that casually that was the person's name. And in a way, we don't find out that much about him. He's like a small plot line, mm. but he's... He's also a very complicated character. Yeah, I, I don't like to write caricatures. I mean, I think the closest we get to a caricature book in, in, in the book is Corinne. And yeah. I think every book, just, yeah, every book needs a baddie. Yeah. And 
I I did think about exploring Corinne's background a bit, but I thought, you know what? Just let her be an antagonist. We don't need to have a moment of great revelation from her. Just no. let her be an obstacle. But Natan, yeah, he is complicated and Martha's complicated mm. and their situation is complicated. And I think I just wanted to make sure even the minor characters were multidimensional and had felt true to life. Mm. I think where that really plays out, actually, is the different people that Ella meets on her journey to becoming a wedding planner um, without giving spoilers away. But she comes across kind of different people and their own struggles. And it's not just about her helping them or them helping her. It's that you get a very quick, like a snapshot into who that person is. Yeah. And they're not kind of just parachuted in to be a name to make the fill a few pages. I think. Yeah, I didn't want I didn't didn't want to use human beings as like mere plot devices and yeah. be like, oh well, you know, the this cast of characters are here to save the day or help her. I wanted I wanted it to be just that because that, that does speak to Ella's empathy as well, that she is curious about the people she meets. Mm. So she is absorbing things about them even if they are unfamiliar to her right. that m- most people might not see most people might just see someone and think what can I get from them and Ella's not thinking like that I was thinking about in Friends which often we illustrate our conversation with Friends <laughs> um, when Joey's rehearsing the play and the director describes actors as the talking props and um, which is really a very funny thing as someone who's worked in theatre but um, it's, it can often be a bit jarring in a book like if somebody's just there for the sake mm. of it then you think, why do I have to care about this person? But they all have elements that make you kind of care. Do you think you'll write more around any of the characters, like maybe one of the side characters or furthering the story of the main characters? I will say that uh, it's probably not my next book, but there is a book that I do plan to one day write that has Ben as a central character. Ben... The brother, Rachel's brother, Rachel's new right. agey brother, not the central character, but a, as a as a pivotal character in that book. Okay, so that's a spin off that you think you might like. There is a story I'd like to tell that is sort of based around something I briefly mentioned in this book, which is the Exeter Jewish community, the the shul yep. there, where the, the multi denominational shul with a few members, which I, I was actually a member of for my time at university and really loved and they were like my extended family and I enjoyed it so much and that sort of feeling of this eclectic community in the middle of nowhere is something that I'd like to explore more and it is somewhere where I think someone like Ben might well end up especially if he say has a nearby auntie he can mooch off of. Right excellent yeah that is um, I'm very aware of that community and it is a lovely and special one so yeah good choice I'd say. Um, So this is a brilliant book. It's coming out, I feel, at the right time of Not Jewish Christmas. What else do you plan to do? What are your next steps as a writer? Well, hopefully write more books um, in whatever form that comes. (laughs) I'm I'm working on some things at the moment, some outlines and some things. Hopefully write some more scripts. But at the moment, what I'm working on is we have a podcast. It is called Leaving Erinsborough. We rewatch Neighbours from the very beginning, from 1985 onwards. And there's quite a few episodes of that up wherever you get podcasts already. If you're a Neighbours fan and you love the Scott and Charlene era, we just started covering that a couple of episodes ago. Charlene arrived, I think, two or three episodes ago. So 
it yeah. might be something that you might be interested in reliving probably <laughs> with a different perspective to how you watched it at the time if i'm honest it's not it's not all as romantic as i thought it was going to be and, and we're very analytical like it is, it is a it is a um, doctorate level takedown of the storyline. Oh yeah, we go in deep, and Rachel's observations are second to none. You will enjoy them <laughs> immensely. And I have a podcast with my friend Rob. It's called Beatles Around the Bush. He's a Kate Bush fan. I'm a Beatles fan, and we are trying to convert each other to our respective fandoms by going through the music album by album and. A lot of the time, it's our first time hearing a lot of the music. And so mm. we're, res- we're giving each other our responses. We've been friends since we were eight. If anyone's read Drama Queen, yeah. my first book, which was my memoir, that's Rob from the book. What are you doing, Rachel? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on social media at Rach Krieger or on my website, rachelkrieger.com. And at the moment, I've had to have a bit of time off for various reasons, but I'm just coming back to gigging. So dates come up on there. And in the spring, my show, Ultimate Jewish Mother, is going to be heading out on tour. So Yay. please come and support that. It's just lovely and silly, funny show. And it's not political in any way, so no one has to be afraid of it. It's just <laughs> it's just like jokes and songs. If you like things like Victoria Wood type comedy, I think you would like this. Yeah, absolutely. Rachel is very, very funny. And you don't need to be Jewish to enjoy Ultimate Jewish Mother. Everyone needs a Jewish mother. You don't need to be Jewish to enjoy Eight Bright Lights either. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been so nice chatting to you. As you know, Sarah, when I like something, I like to talk about it a lot. So I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and yeah, turning the tables on me. It's been really fun to talk about the book and to talk to you as always. You can get Eight Bright Lights wherever you get books, pretty much online. Just search for Eight Bright Lights in your favourite bookstore and you should find it. Oh, and I should also say that it is currently for the month of November, if anyone's still listening in November, on Amazon monthly deal in the Kindle US store. And until the 23rd of November I believe it's 99p in UK ebook format as well and so if you want to get it for a bargain price get it and the audiobook is out as well and particularly enjoy the audiobook because I think that the readers have done a really fantastic job got three amazing readers and I think you'll really really love how they bring Ella, Hannah and Rachel to life so yeah, go and go and download that if you if that's your preferred format. You've been listening to Ort Hour. This episode was guest hosted by Rachel Krieger. Our guest today was me, Sarah Gibbs. Our theme song is by Graham Rawson. Our logo is by Graham Watson. Stay tuned for season two, hopefully coming in 2024.